Good evening. Wow. It's going to be a long night if you guys are that tired already. Um, I am excited uh, to be able to just open up God's Word and talk really about Calvinism. And I am privileged to be a part of a church who not only cares about Calvinism and that it is wrong, but also a pastor who preaches that it is wrong. So if you would, please turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we'll be starting off tonight in verse 20, Romans 3, verse 20. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been guilty of overcorrecting before? Overcorrecting. So let me give you an example. Maybe you're driving and you see a turn coming up, and there's a car here in the turning lane, there's a pole, there's a sidewalk, and you begin to go towards the turn. Well, out of your peripheral, you'll see somebody coming towards you, or maybe somebody just yells in the car. I don't know. Crazy things happen while you're driving. And so you freak out and you maybe overcorrect and you hit a car or a person or a pole, whatever the case may be, you overcorrect it. Or that happens sometimes when cooking. I'm not the greatest, what's the word, cook. I guess that's the word, cook. I'm not the best cook. My wife's pretty good. Um, my wife's also very good at baking. I'm not good at that either. In fact, I've overcorrected one time. I went to cooking uh, class at PCC Home Ec. I did that because I thought, you know what, I'm getting married. Might as well learn how to bake, right? So I go into class, and I wasn't paying attention at all, and this is my fault. And I, no, I think that's what happened. I missed the lecture about baking soda and measurements. So we have to make a cake from scratch. And so I'm looking at it, and I put some baking soda in there, and I'm like, okay, that looks right. And I'm like, I don't know if that's, that's it. So I get another scoop, put it in there again. I'm like, well, I guess it's okay. So I put another scoop in. And it starts rising while I'm putting it in the pan. I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. Go and I do what the teacher tells me to, and I put it in the oven, and then all of a sudden, I hear a scream from across the room as the cake had then exploded and went over everybody, the door, the walls, the ceiling, and I didn't get the best grade on that cake, as you can, <laughs> can as assume. Uh, but we sometimes overcorrect sometimes. We, we judge things, we may overcorrect. And I'm, I'm going to say that's true in our lives. It's also true in religion. I believe uh, Calvinism, John Calvin himself, overcorrected. And tonight, as we are looking at Calvinism, we're going to first see from Scripture why his teachings, the teachings of Calvinism, is unbiblical. But first, I think it is important for us to understand where Calvinism came from. And by doing so, I believe we'll have a better understanding of why it is correct. So before we get into the history of that, um, I would like for us to go to the Lord in prayer and just ask him to be with us tonight because there's a lot of information in a short amount of time. Well, let's go to the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for how good you've been to us, Lord. We thank you for your scripture, and we thank you for your clear teachings, Lord. I just pray that you'll be with me, help my, my tongue, help me to be clear and concise, Lord, um, and do my best to just uh, bring this to life and make it clear for everyone who's hearing. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you're going to take notes, and I encourage you to do so, uh, we'll go to the next slide, which is the history of Calvinism. That's going to be our first point tonight. I want you to think back with me what it would be like to live during the time right before the Reformation. Now, this is a very, very dark time for the church. From about 400 AD until now, the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church has been in control. The Pope, in many cases, taught his own deity and that he had the right to rule over everything. In many cases, the Pope was the actual final authority on faith and practice, even that over the Scripture and, in some cases, over God. 
uh, the kings and nations, because of this, because of his immense amount of power of the popes, they believed they needed to honor the church or else they would be excommunicated. And that means uh, they would not be able to participate in the actual rituals and activities of the church and then not be able to make or earn their way to heaven. This power that the church had brought a lot of corruption. But around 1516 AD, there were a group of men who were really searching the scriptures. And it became apparent to them uh, as they're reading the scriptures that this is not what the Bible is teaching. One of these men was named John Calvin of France. Now, John went to school to be a lawyer uh, where he quickly uh, heard a lesson of the importance of learning Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And so he did that. And as he is now reading God's word, he looks at the Catholic Church, he looks at today's, that today's society, and he sees no mention in the Bible of a mediator between, on earth between God and man besides that of Jesus Christ. And so that bothers him. He also so, saw no mention of this thing called penance or a work-based salvation. But what he did see bothered him. He saw clergymen who were committing fornication with women from their church and calling it a work of God. He saw men who were also clergymen taking the tithes and offerings from, from their people and using it for their own riotous living. He saw men who devoted themselves to studying the scriptures begin to not even understand nor can even read the Latin, Greek, and the Hebrew. And so they were just making up stuff. And he saw these things, and he was bothered. And really, the Reformation, the change of the time began for him. So he moved from uh, to a place called Basel, where he wasn't welcome. Then he moved to Geneva, uh, begins to write his own translation into the, the German language. And as he begins to study God's word, he, he, he begins to determine from Scripture that, he, that man did not need to work to have a relationship with God, but that salvation was obtained through grace from, by grace through faith alone. And that was actually a motto that they had, faith alone. Uh, man could not receive glory, right? Glory belonged to God only. And the Pope certainly did not receive the glory. And it should only belong to God. So now you understand, right, the background. You understand where he's, where he's coming from. But I also want you to understand what he's dealing with. Watch as his philosophy is brought into its logical conclusion. And this is the foundation that everything else that Calvinism hangs on. John Calvin believed that faith was a work. Calvin believed that faith was a work. Now, he believed, I would say, he overcorrected. Everything that the, the Roman Catholic Church was, was bad, works, terrible, stay away from works, right? It's all through God, he's, his sovereignty, he's all-powerful, he's almighty. And so everything that the Roman Catholic Church, he, he wanted to stay away from, and he wanted to give all of that glory to God, and that affected his ideology and his philosophy. And we are going to look right now through Scripture how that philosophy is wrong and why the Bible doesn't say that. So if you're taking notes, on the next slide, point number two Faith is not a work. Faith is not a work. Look with me now in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The Bible says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. We're going to jump into this passage and we are going to dissect it verse by verse because I believe God in his foreknowledge knew what we were going to be dealing with today. 
And so he makes it very clear for us that faith and works are separate. So let's go and look down right now in verse 20. It says, Therefore by the deeds of law shall no man be justified in his sight. Meaning, there is no work that can justify us to God, right? There's nothing that we can do to obtain righteousness. But it says, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law that was given to us was, there, was not there to help us obtain righteousness. But the law that was given to us was there to help us realize that we could never obtain righteousness by ourselves. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We know, right? There's nothing that we can do to obtain that righteousness. And we, we see, see this in the law and the prophets. How many times do we see from God's word men who had the law who aren't able to keep it? And then the greatest commandment was this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Okay? So they had the law and the prophets, but yet David continued to mess up time and time again, but yet he loved the Lord. Do you, get, you see what it's saying here? But yet he loved the Lord. Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe, for there is no difference. See, the righteousness that we receive, we know this. This is elementary stuff. This is something we've learned in Sunday school, in junior church. Faith is where we get that righteousness. It's from Jesus Christ and not by the works of law. God here is making a clear difference. He's saying faith is not synonymous with works. But he continues. If that wasn't clear enough for you, he says, I'm going to nail it in your heads. Verse 27, where is boasting then? Right? Where is the glory that we can receive? Where is boasting? How can we boast before God? It is excluded. Man cannot boast because our faith doesn't allow for us to boast. We can do nothing. It's not a work, so we cannot boast because of it. Because faith is not a work, we cannot earn that salvation. So where is boasting then? It's excluded by the law, by or of works. Nay, but by the law of faith. The law doesn't justify us. Works don't justify us. But faith and the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is what justifies us to God. Verse 28, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It's con the conclusion is simple. All right? He boils it down to this. Everything that God is trying to teach his people is summed up right here. Man cannot be justified by works or the deeds of law, only by faith. The reason is this, because faith is not a work. And remember, lest any man should boast. Do you think you have it? Okay? Do you think that God nailed it down enough? He doesn't stop there. All right? He goes on and goes on. So in actually, Romans chapter 4, verse 2, he makes it even clearer to us. The Bible says in Romans 4, 2, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wherefore to glory, but not before God. Abraham, the father of many nations, the nation of Israel, the person that everyone looked up to. If anyone had a reason to be justified by works, it would be him, but not before God. Verse 3, for what saith scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, unto him for righteousness. The only righteousness that Abraham received was not of himself, not by the works, not by the deeds of his own self, because those works were as 
filthy rags are worthless. His righteousness comes because of the faith of the object of his faith, and that's in Jesus Christ or in God. We can go on and on and on, verse after verse, where we see the difference, the clear difference between works and faith. We have no merit in our salvation. We have no room to boast. We have no justification. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, Scripture is not meant to be confusing, because God is not the author of confusion. Scripture is not meant to have a hidden meaning, because it is not of any private interpretation. But I want you to see firsthand how we understand this fundamental truth. Faith is not a works. And honestly, if some Calvinists would agree with what we just said there. But as they follow their logical progression, they have a switch on us. Um, and they misinterpret this foundational truth. And that's where we're going to see our third point for tonight, the switcheroo. How to spell that? I don't really know. Spell check didn't understand what switcheroo meant. Um, the switcheroo, and then it's colon... Monergism versus synergism. If you don't know what that means, it's okay. We'll get through it. Monergism versus synergism. Okay. So, if you could go to our next slide, monergism versus synergism. I think it's important for us to see what actual Calvinists say about these things. Okay? I don't want you to just take my word that this is what Calvinists are saying. I want you to see from Calvinists that this is what they're saying. And so, we are going to actually see what a um, Calvinist has said as the definitions of monergism versus synergism. So if you would go to the next slide, we're going to look at R.C. Sprawl. He's beginning to explain the difference between monergism and synergism. Can anybody read that fine print? That's fine. All right. The doctrine of justification, this is what he's saying, by faith alone, was debated during the Reformation on a deeper level of monergistic regeneration. This technical term must be explained. Monergism is derived from a combination of a prefix and a root. All right, I, that's a lot of information. I'm going to go down to the last point because that's where, where the good stuff is. Monergism is something that operates by itself or works alone as the sole active party. Monergism is the opposite of synergism. Synergism shares a common root with monergism, but it has a different prefix. The prefix sin comes from the Greek word, which means with. Synergism is a cooperative venture, a working together of two parts or more parties. Okay, a lot of information, a lot of stuff. What does that say? Simply, monergism means that one person is doing all the work. Okay, so if you have two people in a boat, all right, somebody's sipping some Coke, the other person is rowing. That's monergism. That's what that means. If you have synergism is the opposite of that. That means two or more people are working together to get uh, something done. Um, so... For instance, you have two people in a boat. They're both rowing. That's synergism. When it comes to salvation, we would actually consider ourselves as monergists. Okay? That's because we believe that Jesus Christ did all the work. Right? We believe that Jesus Christ, on his finished work of salvation, dying on the cross for our sins, it was all him, not of us. So we would be uh, monergists. Um, however, Calvinists want us with their own rationale to believe that we're actually synergists because we believe that we have the ability to choose. So that makes us an active participant. Uh, participant. So we're actually going to see where a Calvinist will explain that to us. Um, in our second clip, then the next uh, slide here, we're going to see James White, popular Calvinist, has a lot of debates, uh, several podcasts, and he's actually going to explain to us 
why we are synergists, okay? If you can play the clip. All synergists together is that God is not the one who saves. He makes salvation possible. He aids by some kind of grace, whether it's a prevenient grace or whatever else, but uh, unless you're a full-on Pelagian, uh, you will at least acknowledge the necessity of some level of God's grace. Um, and so what binds everyone together is that if you're a monergist, God can actually save. If you're a synergist, God can only try to save. And you can give him all the credit in the world and say, I've never been able to save myself. That's true. But you also have to turn it around if you're a synergist and say, and God could not have saved me without me. That's, that's the issue. That's the fundamental issue. Okay, so what he insists is that we believe we have a choice in salvation, which makes us an active participant in salvation. Like he said, we would say that without us, there would be no salvation. However, I would argue that without us, there would be no reason for salvation. We are the cause, the reason that God had to send his son to die on the cross. Scripture tells us this. We could do nothing to earn this salvation. And therefore, that is why Jesus Christ had to come down to sacrifice himself. Do you see the switch, though? He now says that our faith, which is in Jesus Christ, is, it makes Jesus Christ no longer the object of our faith. Rather, it makes us the object of our faith. And that's simply not true. We believe that Jesus is the object. It is nothing in and of ourselves. It is only the object of our faith that we can have salvation. The third quote that we're going to see, if you go to the next slide. All sin... Sorry about just that. You'll have to... Oh, yeah, you're good. Okay. Uh, the third quote is from actually R.C. Sprawl Jr. Um, and he says, Regeneration is the cause of faith, not faith the cause of regeneration. So what they believe is that we cannot obtain or even understand faith. We, we cannot understand the things of God. So God has to regenerate us first to allow us to comprehend the things of God. And so the reason we can experience faith, the reason we can accept Jesus Christ is because God first regenerated us. This, the, the next uh, quote is from John Piper. Now, this guy is a very popular preacher and author, uh, um, he writes plenty of books. In fact, he swayed several, several people uh, to this movement. And he says this, We do not cause our new birth by an act of faith. Just the reverse. The cry of faith is the first sound that a newborn babe in Christ makes. Regeneration, as we sometimes call it, is all of God. We do not get God to do this by trusting Christ. We trust Christ because he has done it to us already. So, again, they think that we cannot experience faith, we cannot experience, understand faith without first being regenerated because we are depraved. We are dead in sin. And so God has to first jumpstart us. He has to offer us that regeneration for us to comprehend. And because of that, that first cry is our faith that we acknowledge that Christ is uh, who he says he is. And lastly, um, we're going to look at a Calvinistic website um, that... In real time, we'll try to take the belief that you have and convert you 
um, just by some misleading quotes, honestly. It's just very misleading. Um, so if you don't know exactly what um, they're going to ask you, it can get you. So looking at here, we first have the tulip test, okay? So we're going to work through this together. It's the tulip test. This is from proofthatgodexists.org, and they have a number of question and answer things, uh, some good, some bad. I would recommend not going there, but this is just what it is. So the tulip test, the first question is, the Word of God, is the Word of God your ultimate authority? We would say, yes, okay. The Word of God is our ultimate authority. Any doctrine which denies Jesus Christ's the glory he is due is wicked, right? That's what the Old Testament talks about, blasphemy. New Testament talks about blasphemy. Anything that takes away from the glory of God would be wicked, correct? Okay, so we would agree with that. How much glory does Jesus get for our salvation? Well, we know this, that it was nothing that we could do. It was what Jesus did on the cross. So really, God gets all the glory, right? Jesus gets all the glory for our salvation. Is that right? All the glory? All right, all the glory. What makes you different from the damned? Is it what Jesus did for us or what I did? Well, it's obviously what Jesus did. He's the one that did all the work. He's the one that made the way of salvation. Okay, so what Jesus did. Did Jesus do the same for everyone? Yes, right? We would agree with that. Jesus did the same for everyone. That's where the switcheroo happens. They then ask you this. If that's the case... What well, makes you different than the damned, right? And they have a little caption underneath. If Jesus did the same for everyone, then what makes you different from the damned? Must be what you did, right? So do you see how they switch the definition? They switch the terminology on us? And so we would say, what makes you different from the damned? It's still not what I did, right? So it's still what Jesus did. So if you can click on that. Did Jesus do the same for everyone? And this is where they're going to elaborate their definition. Okay, so they're going to give us a scenario. There are those who claim that salvation is similar to those that are drowning in a lake. To rescue, a rescue boat comes, and the rescuer throws out a rope. All a person does to be saved is to grab onto that rope. Would they claim that they contribute to their salvation? Of course not, right? Because they weren't the one that had the boat or the rope. Second paragraph. Here's the problem with that scenario. Imagine the person drowning in a lake beside their friend who is also drowning in the lake. Now the rescuer comes, throws out two ropes, has a boat, throws out two ropes. One grabs it, one does it, right? The difference between the one who is saved is the one who drowns is that the scenario is that it is 100% of the person drowning and none of the rescuer. So they're saying because one is accepted and one doesn't, it now makes you an active participant. It's because you grabbed onto the rope. Any reason the person gives for grabbing onto the rope would be boastful, whereas Scripture tells us that faith is the gift of God so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. No, our salvation is not similar to being saved from drowning in a lake, more like being dead at the bottom of a lake. And Jesus brings some to life such that we will freely get into the boat. So you see where the, the switcheroo is? So the only way for us to be able to get through this is, did Jesus do the same for everyone? If you follow their logical train of progression, we would say no, which then would um, say you believe in limited atonement. Do you see where it happens? You see how it's just taking a few of the things that we believe and just twisting it ever so slightly. So that's why it's so important that we are grounded in the Word of God. We know what we believe. We are, we are, there is no uh, excuse. We have a reason. Do you understand why it's so important? So 
now that you understand where the switcheroo happens, we're going to go to our fourth point, which is understanding the error. Okay, understanding the error. Um, go ahead and write that down with me. John Calvin overcorrected. He wanted to remove himself so far from work-based system of Catholic church. He also wanted to make sure that God received all the glory. And because of this, he believed really that faith was a work. And because of that, it really caused him to, again, interpret Scripture with that bias. So Calvin began to look at everything, every single word of God with that um, philosophy. And eventually, that's what brought forth the uh, five points of Calvinism. He was refuting somebody else at the time, and so he wanted to write down exactly what he believed according to Scripture, according to what he believed. Uh, and actually, we're just going to go through these step by step. Um, we're not going to go length exactly what they mean, because honestly, we could do a whole sermon series just based on each and every one of these and refute that. So we're just going to go real quick. So if you would... Uh, to follow what the TULIP stands for, T is total depravity. T is total depravity. If faith is a work, then how can man receive salvation of Jesus Christ? So follow the logical progression. If faith is a work, how can man receive salvation from Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is he couldn't. Man is totally deprived. He believes that man is so totally dead and unable to acknowledge the, the, um, the fact that God even exists. However, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God has revealed himself in word, in his creation, in his man's conscience. And yes, man is dead in sin, separated from God. However, he is not dead from knowing God. Do you see the difference there? He is dead in sin, but he is not dead from knowing God. You, unconditional election. Okay, so if faith is a work and man is totally depraved, then who can receive faith? Well, only those that God chooses or elects can receive that faith. And those who he chooses can do nothing to merit God choosing them. All right, so God chooses them, but it's, there's no system, there's no rhyme or reason, because if there was, it would be a reason for that person to boast or give glory to them. It is unconditional. That's what it means by unconditional election. There is no rhyme or reason to accept. The only reason is to bring glory to God. However, the Bible teaches that though man is unworthy, all of us unworthy, God commendeth his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We would agree that man has nothing in and of himself to make himself valuable. But the value that we do have, because we do have value, it's from God. Because we are created in the image of God. So yes, we would acknowledge, really, there's no, nothing that we can do, no, nothing that's conditional that would make us great. But it's what God has placed on us. Because remember, He is the object. It's not us. He is the object. So unconditional election. Moving on to uh, L, that would be limited atonement. If you're taking notes, limited atonement. So if faith is a work, man is totally depraved, and God's election is unconditional... Who did Christ die for? According to Calvin, Jesus did not die for everyone, only of the elect. Because if Jesus died for you, and God is sovereign, and God is all-powerful, how can man resist God's saving power? Do you, you see the logic? Do you see where it's going? They would take verses like John 3.16 and place limits on the terms. Uh, that when it says, for God so loved the world, they would justify that and say, well, it's not the world or the 
whole world. It's the people groups of the world or just, you know, categories. You know, this nation, this nation, this people group. And so he did die for the world, but not like everyone that ever existed. And uh, the, vor the verse that he used to support this was uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And uh, we're just going to refute that real quick before we move on. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications, prayer, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all goodness, godliness, and honesty. So what they're saying is God was uh, in Scripture giving caveats, distinctions under what he meant for all men. But if you read that in a plain interpretation and also look at the languages of what it's actually saying, He's, he's making, uh, not saying that you shouldn't pray for all men. He's, he's giving addition. He's not making distinctions. He's giving, hey, you need to pray for all men, also for kings, and for all that are in authority over you. He's not saying just pray for kings and pray for those in authority. He's saying you need to pray for everyone, including those people. So there is not, it's not separating it. It's not making it lower. It's actually adding more to it. And so it's just a wrong interpretation of that verse. So again, they would take verses and they would add extra meanings or definitions to that. I is irresistible grace. So if faith is not a work or is a work, man is depraved, election is unconditional, and atonement, the atonement Jesus offers is limited, how can grace work? How does that work? Well, we say that Calvinists believe that God saved some and condemned others, and that's because we honestly just take their logic to the, the progression that it has. However, Calvinists will claim that they believe that God gives grace as a gift because grace given is what you can receive faith in. So Calvinists interpret grace, that regeneration, as a gift from God. Okay, because God is God, and God is all-powerful, and God is all-sovereign, man cannot resist the salvation that he offers. A man who, being de dead, totally depraved, could not be regenerated without, in, in this logic with an irresistible grace. They will use, use verses like Ephesians uh, eight and not, 2, 8, and 9. If you want to turn there with me, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Yeah, we got time. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay? So this is what they would use to justify their thinking. They believe that grace is the gift that God received, which enables our saving or salvation. But if you look at the original languages, and I, I don't like to usually bring this up, but in order to make this point, you'd have to. The word for grace is actually feminine, and the word for gift is neuter, meaning that God the gift is not associated with the word grace. Rather, the word that's associated with that is salvation. It's explaining that salvation that God offers us is the gift. Okay, so that's what we believe. Salvation from God, the thing that he has done for us, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised again the third day, that is the gift that we can receive. Okay, it's not grace. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay, so that's irresistible grace. And P is perseverance of the saints. So, if faith is a work, man is depraved, election is unconditional, atonement is limited, and God's grace is irresistible, what does that mean for the Christian? So, if you're elect, and you cannot resist God because he is all-powerful, and you resisting him would limit his glory, because of this, if you are truly one of the elect, you will persevere in the faith, meaning you will not fail in the flesh or backslide, because then you would 
grieve the Holy Spirit. Because God is in you, you cannot resist the Spirit moving in you. Now, you may mess up, but you will not become a carnal Christian. However, we can see throughout all Scripture, all right, where Christians fall and where Christians become carnal. An example of this is the Christian who committed acts with his mother-in-law in the book of Corinthians. And that is why I believe Jesus taught us the model prayer, because he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because he realized, hey, you are born, you have a new body, but you still have that sinful flesh, right? You're still in that carnal, carnal body. And so you are going to struggle. And that's why we have the epistles. That's where you see, where even in the, the book of Corinthians, where he's talking about the people who were taking, uh, who were dead, because God had to take them up early because they were not doing the Lord's Supper correctly. Well, yes, you were doing wrong. You, you weren't walking in the Spirit. And so you, you see the difference. Now, we all would agree, Calvinists and us alike would agree with this. You can't lose your salvation. But they would believe that you would be, if you truly elect, you would persevere until the very end. So, John Calvin, just to conclude this, he overcorrected. And because of this, he has led for centuries now many people astray with his philosophies. However, I want to warn you of the dangers of following men's ideologies. You will see right now this movement with many books coming out, many contemporary Christian artists, Sovereign Grace for one of them, within the music that they are singing are talking about these irresistible grace. All right, and, and songs like that. And if you, I don't recommend listening to the words, but if you listen to the words, you would hear exactly what they're preaching and they're trying to teach and how they're trying to indoctrinate your thinking. However, I want to say this Calvinism is a progression of thought which is based on one assertion. And the assertion is this faith is a work. And because of this belief, Honestly, it would destroy many illustrations of God himself, such as the bride and the groom. Okay, God has, ha, is the, the groom coming for his bride, and he offered himself to the bride. And the bride is preparing herself, and now he's coming again. That would destroy that illustration. Also, Calvinism claims that God cannot be resisted. But you have to think about this. Do you not remember the accounts of the fallen angels? Right? Lucifer tried to have a coup in heaven. But yet he resisted God and took a third of the angels with him. But yet if God's so sovereign, how could that happen? Let me say this. God cannot be put in a box. God is not willing that any should perish because God is God. He can do whatever he wants with his creation. He can do whatever he wants with himself. And that includes limiting himself. It is said that what God did and what he died on the cross, is that not what he did? God himself limited himself. He made himself of no reputation and humbled himself, even to the death of the cross. God can also, if that's true, can also allow his creation to have free will and choose whether or not to accept this free gift of salvation. Because honestly, would it be a gift if we could refuse it? Would it be grace if we deserved it? Do you get what I'm saying? Follow the logic here. So I stand before you tonight and declare this, that we as Christians should never inter interpret a passage with a preconceived notion. We should never change definitions to make our philosophies work. And we should never try to claim that we understand all the ways of God, because this is it. Honestly, the plan of salvation doesn't make sense. I'll be honest with you. Why would God love the men that rejected him? Why would God send himself God in the flesh to die on the cross 
for his fallen creation sins. Why would he go through the beating and the anguish and having the wrath of the Father placed on him for us? Does that make sense? But it was the love. But God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, I don't know why. And I'm not going to try to understand why God does what he does. All I know is, if God said it in his word, if God says, hey, I said whosoever will, I die for the whole world. I am coming for you because I love you. Even though you're unworthy, I'm going to believe it. So let me ask you tonight. There's a lot of information. I know we had to go through that quite, quick, uh, quite quickly. But would you purpose in your heart, as pastor comes in a moment, would you purpose to know what you believe and why you believe it? Because honestly, they're, they're biting for our younger generation. They're going to try to get you while you're young because honestly, it is a confusing thing. Did you not see all the confused... Confusion in that? Do you see the switcheroos? Because if you're not grounded, it is easy for us to get swayed. So let me encourage you with this. Know God's word. Know what he says. And believe it and teach it to the others and teach it to your youth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.